passage for this week is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. And you can find that on page 894 in those Blue Pew Bibles. And it reads as follows. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Would you bow your heads and hearts with me, and let's pray before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, it is good uh, that you have given us this day. It is good that you have called us uh, into your presence, uh, not only in this, uh, in this hour, but that you set aside a day for us to rest uh, from our labors, uh, for us to uh, acknowledge our dependence on you, acknowledge that we are creatures and you are our creator, uh, that we are sinners uh, and you are our redeemer, uh, that we are your people and that we're your people because you've called us that, because you've given us uh, your name uh, and, and you are the one who has made the first move uh, at, at every step. Um, and so, Father, we, we, we come before you um, not because uh, it was our idea, not because um, we're particularly good, but because we have been called. Uh, and because you have uh, put your name on us and you have sent your spirit. Uh, and, and we are grateful uh, to be in your presence uh, and to know that by your spirit you are here uh, with us uh, in our midst. Um, Father, it is always our prayer uh, when we come before your word that your spirit would be active. Uh, and, and we are thankful to be able to pray things like that that you have promised to do. Um, to, to simply be able to ask exactly what you have promised to do uh, in your word so that we can be certain um, that, in fact, uh, your word uh, will not return to you void, um, that, that, in fact, you will um, apply your word to our hearts uh, in just the way uh, that we need. Father, um, I want to pray uh, this week uh, for those who are weary, uh, for those who are, are tired, uh, those who are anxious. Um, Father, uh, we have many cares, um, as we have at, at many times in the last two years. Um, we have a lot of cares that we, uh, that we hold in common uh, and that we as a people uh, can bring before you. Father, I want to pray in particular uh, this week for, for two groups. Um, Father, I want to pray uh, for those uh, who are working in, in health care. Um, Father, for the doctors, for the nurses, for the PAs, for, um, for everyone uh, who's, who's working in a, uh, inside of a system that is uh, stretched um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and running short uh, on, on resources. Uh, Father, would you give them strength? Um, would you give them great compassion? 
Uh, I've heard several times this week uh, about the phenomenon of compassion fatigue, and it makes me think of that, of that verse um, where Paul admonishes all of us not to grow weary of doing good, uh, not to grow weary of loving one another and, and of having compassion and mercy. Um, and we know from that verse, uh, from, from that context, that without your spirit, that's impossible uh, because kindness uh, and peace and patience, these things we talk about as being fruit of your spirit. And so, Father, I pray uh, for that fruit uh, in the lives um, of our people that are, that are working um, in, uh, in, in healthcare. And, and Father, along the same lines, I pray for educators, uh, for, for teachers and, and paraprofessionals and the staff at schools, and again, working in a system that, that is just stretched. Um, Father, for, for patience, for wisdom, uh, again, for compassion and for kindness. And, and Lord, uh, for all of us, we pray for relief. Um, we have been praying and we will continue to pray um, that you would bring uh, COVID to an end, um, that you would bring relief uh, to this world and, and to your people. We thank you for what you have already done. Um, we thank you um, that, that there are vaccines available. We thank you that, um, uh, that, that where we are now, as, as crazy and uncertain as this past week has been, uh, where we are now is not where we were a year ago. Um, Father, we, we give you thanks. Uh, it didn't have to be that way. It's a great mercy. Um, and so we, we give you thanks for that. Um, Father, as we turn uh, now uh, to this passage, I just ask again that you would work through it, uh, through your word, uh, not so much through my words, but through your uh, word uh, that you've called me to preach. Uh, and I do pray, uh, as always, that the words of my mouth uh, and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, so some years ago, um, I taught uh, a Sunday school class um, about different uh, images in the Bible um, of God's salvation through judgment. Um, this is actually a big theme in the Bible, um, and it's, it's really cool to see the, the images, uh, the pictures um, that God uses to convey that sometimes his salvation and his judgment uh, actually come, come together. Um, just to, to pick on one of those, I mean, maybe the most obvious would be the image of water, right? You think about water in the Bible. Um, water can, on the one hand, uh, be a symbol of, uh, of, of chaos and disaster. You think about the flood, you think about the storm, right? Um, but on the other hand, um, water is something that quenches our thirst, uh, it's something that cleans, um, and, and, it's, and it's really great to see, you know, in baptism, whenever we have the sacrament of baptism here in the church, those things come together, right? Um, because baptism signifies both uh, the, the, the washing away of sin, um, but also of being united to Christ uh, in his burial uh, and, and his resurrection, the one who went into the waters for us, right? So here's, that's, just, that's just one example of one of these images that's both salvation and judgment. Well, when I had finished the class, I, I, I went through several of these images, um, and I said, you know, the ones that, I, that we looked at, water was one, fire was one, so that's not necessarily an exhaustive list. I'm curious, can, can you guys think of any others? And someone put up their hand and said, what about light? Uh, light was not one of the ones that, that I had talked about, but I realized that's, that's pretty good. Um, light is another thing in Scripture which 
you know, the first thing that we think of when we look at light um, is that it's something that we want. Uh, we don't want to be in darkness. Um, we want the light to shine uh, when we feel like we're walking in darkness. We don't want to be bumping into things. But at the same time, light is often something that uh, exposes um, and that is, is uncomfortable uh, for those who have things to hide. Um, you remember uh, last year when we were going through John, uh, we came to John 3, um, and Jesus said this. This is, this is verse 19 of John 3. Uh, he said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And, and if you remember, um, we paid attention to the fact that that word judgment there is a, a Greek word that actually gives us our word crisis. Remember that? Um, and so it was like Jesus was saying, my coming into the world as light is the crisis. It's a judgment in the sense that a crisis reveals what's already true, reveals the weaknesses that were already there. Um, well, this week, uh, in this passage, um, as, we, as we keep following this, this conversation uh, between Jesus um, and uh, the, the Jews, and particularly the religious leaders um, that were at the Feast of Booths at this time, um, we're seeing conflict get ramped up. Um, and we're seeing more and more um, Jesus entering into these people's lives as a crisis, something that shakes them up, something that's going to reveal uh, what's already true. Um, just like last week, just like the week before, the main thing that's going on uh, in this passage and, and really all the way uh, through chapter 8 is that Jesus is saying, if you want to know the Father, if you want to know God, then you have to know me. If you want to see the Father, you have to see me. When you look at me, you're looking at him um, because I do what he does. Um, Jesus is the light of the world as he said in verse 12, and he illuminates the Father. But at the same time, he is the light that exposes our hearts. Um, so let's take a look at, the, at, this, at, this, at this passage, uh, this, this continued conversation. Um, right off the bat, there's a little bit of a puzzle. Um, and it's, it's, it's useful to, to think about this for a minute. The puzzle is, as we look at verses 31 to 38, and we see the language turning uh, increasingly um, uh, negative, um, who is Jesus talking to? Right? The puzzle is, verse 31 says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Right? Our passage last week uh, said, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. But then, by the end of the passage, he's saying things like, uh, you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. So, who's he talking to? Uh, it seems strange that he would be saying those things to people who had believed him, right? So, there's a couple solutions um, that, 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 that commentators have offered. One is, um, it, it's very likely that... Jesus is talking to a large enough group of people that there would be those who had believed him, and then there would be others there with him as well. So it could be that at some point in this conversation, Jesus is expanding, you know, he starts off talking to those who had believed him, 
But at some point, he's talking to more than that. He's talking to these others uh, who, who had not. Um, the trouble with that um, is that it's really difficult to see where that transition would take place in this, in this conversation. Um, I mean, the first thing he says, they immediately answer, uh, we are offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And so it, 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 it seems like this one group that he's talking to from the very beginning of this conversation, uh, those he had believed, who had believed him, um, are immediately having trouble with what he's saying. So then the other possibility um, is that it's, it's possible to believe in Jesus in a way that doesn't really take root or that doesn't really put to rest all of the internal conflict between our hearts that are exposed by the light uh, and Jesus, who is the light, uh, coming into the world. That would actually make a lot of sense in the Gospel of John. Um, think about what we've seen already in the Gospel of John. Uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3, uh, comes to him and says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. So he comes to them with, with kind of this you know, positive spin on things, like, uh, we know you're, you're from God and I want to hear more from you. Um, but Jesus challenges him and says, you have to be born again. More has to take place. There's something that hasn't happened yet in your heart uh, that needs to take place. Um, Think about chapter 6. Chapter 6 was uh, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It started with the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Um, and, and, and then he goes on to say, and you have to feed on me, and if you don't eat of me and drink of my blood, you have no uh, part of the Father, right? So he's increasingly saying these hard sayings, and there's lots of people falling away. Um, lots of people who initially are there um, ostensibly believing in him, at some point, they can't take anymore. Uh, and they fall away. Um, it would make sense in the Gospel of John for there to be those who would, uh, in one sense, believe what Jesus is saying, um, be positively disposed towards him, and yet still be putting up resistance, uh, still for there to be more that needs to happen, uh, still the penny hasn't quite dropped, uh, Jesus' words still don't have any place in their heart, um, as, he, as he puts it. Um, the words that Jesus uses in this passage um, give us a really good um, evocative and descriptive and pretty practical sense of what it means uh, for Jesus' words to have a place in our hearts. Um, for us not only to um, receive some of what he says, uh, but not all of it, um, but for his words really to take root in our hearts. Um, because if you look at the words through here, he talks about abiding in my word. That word abide shows up actually twice in this passage. If you abide in my word, 
And then later when he talks about uh, verse 35, the slave doesn't remain in the house, the son remains. That's the same word, and this word remain, abide, this is going to be a really important word in John, especially when we get to chapter 15, and he's going to talk about the need for us to abide in him the way branches abide in a vine, like drawing our life uh, from, from him. Um, he talks about those who practice uh, sin, those who make a practice of sin, uh, those who stick at it repetitively. We'll talk a little bit about, about what that means. Um, but all of this is to say, this is a great passage for us to look at, um, for us to understand the importance uh, of abiding, uh, of, of an abiding faith that roots itself uh, in, in Christ. Um, so, what does this mean? Well, actually, um, this is a great place uh, for us to do something that I hope we'll do a lot this year, um, which is bring in one of the psalms that we've been looking at. Um, because one of the psalms that we looked at this week um, gives us great imagery uh, for abiding uh, and for being rooted. In fact, it's the first psalm that we looked at, right? In fact, it's our memory verse, um, maybe plus the, the verse after. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. And then it says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Um, I love the imagery uh, of walking and then standing and then sitting. Right In that psalm, it's like the, you get this sense of kind of getting more and more stuck and slowing down and going from just walking along with the wicked to actually standing with them and finally taking a seat and being where they are, right? Um, it's, this, it's this sense of, of um, it, it involves your body. It, it, it involves, you know, physically where you are. Um, we often say, there's this phrase, where you, stand, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit, right? Uh, what matters uh, is where you're rooted. Um, when we think about the decisions that we make, uh, the choices uh, that we make every day, um, we like to think of ourselves as, as being very rational, right, and, and deliberative, right, and exercising free will in, in every decision that we make. Um, but that's not really the way that people work. There's a really good book uh, by a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won a Nobel Prize in, in economics um, almost 20 years ago. Um, he was one of the guys that sort of helped develop the field of, of behavioral economics. And he's written this book called Thinking Fast and Slow, um, which is a really great read. Um, and he points out, you know, our decisions are really ruled, there's two different systems that are at work. Um, there is the slow process of reasoning through things and deliberating, right, and, and making choices. But the vast majority of choices that we make every day are made on intuition, um, are made uh, as much with emotion 
um, as with thought. Um, and it's the things that we're used to doing, the things that we've done hundreds or thousands of times before that we easily do again uh, without thinking. Um, and one of the points that he makes in, in this book is that that's actually really good. That's actually really good for us. Um, I mean, think about what it would be like if you had to literally think through every single decision that you made. I mean, literally every decision that you made. Um, I mean, go back to that image from Psalm 1 of walking, right? When you're out for a walk with a friend, what are you thinking about? Um, you could be thinking about any number of things. You could be thinking about the scenery, you could be thinking about your friend, you could be thinking about the conversation. One thing you're not thinking about is walking, right? You're not thinking, okay, now this foot in front of this one, now catch myself, now, right? You don't have to go through every single step, literally, uh, with thought and with deliberation um, because you've done it thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of times. It gets put on autopilot. Um, better examples would be like if you're learning to play a musical instrument, uh, if you're learning a foreign language, uh, if you're learning a sport, right? Any of these things, you drill these repetitive motions. You, if you're learning to play the piano, you play the scales again and again and again uh, until you're sick of it. But you have to be able to do that so that you can do it without thinking um, in order to be free to actually make music, right? What we're talking about here um, is building up virtue. Uh, the, this, this theology reading group that's been getting together on Thursdays um, has been reading uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, since the fall. Um, and Aquinas talks a lot about virtue uh, which he describes as being a good habit of the mind or the soul uh, that disposes us towards righteousness. It's basically, it's basically those habits, it's that strength of character, it's that second nature disposition that we need in order to use our reason well, in order to deliberate towards things properly. It's something that's cultivated, it's formed in us over time. So again, you think about the musician practicing their scales. Um, I, so I'm not a musician myself, so my examples of this are not as sophisticated as if I could play the piano or, or, or play the cello or something like that. To be honest, what came to mind for me, um, as far as a habit that I had to build up so I could do something by second nature, was learning to throw a frisbee. Okay, so I went to college in California, right? Um, we had a lot of time to go outside and, and, and toss a Frisbee around. This is just what we did a lot. And everybody wanted to be able to learn to throw a forehand, okay? In other words, be able to throw the disc this way. Not, not this way, but be able to throw this way. And when you first try to throw a forehand, it's terrible, right? Everybody tries to throw a forehand, and the, the Frisbee always tails off this way, and you completely miss your target. And the reason is because your arm when you throw something, it naturally wants to turn over, and so you get this like horrible release angle that goes off that way. So here's what you do if you want to learn to throw a forehand. You attach your elbow to your hip. Um, 
hopefully you can just hold it there. If you want to use a bungee cord, I guess you could. But you stick your elbow in your hip, and you throw like this, okay? And then you do it again, and you do it again, right? And you look ridiculous, right? You look like a T-Rex trying to throw a Frisbee. Um, but what it does is it, it means that your arm can't turn over, and you get the thing to come out flat. And once you've gotten used to that by doing it, a few hundred or thousand times, then you can get, put your arm into it. Then your elbow can come free. And you're no longer thinking about how to release it. You're just thinking about throwing to your teammate when you're playing ultimate. Um, or the homework that you should be doing instead of tossing a frisbee around. Whatever. Um, this is something that we're familiar with you know, from these kinds of building up these habits. Um, but something similar uh, is at work uh, when it comes to Jesus' words finding a place in us, um, obeying him. Here's the question that I would ask. When it comes to God's word, when it comes to obedience, what is forming you? What are the things that you're doing repetitively or thinking about again and again and again that are building up a second nature in you that either will or will not allow Jesus' words to have a place and to be able to take root? Um, something that pastors worry about an awful lot uh, is, is, is this, that you know we come together for about an hour each week hour and a half, right? Um, maybe there's another hour in your week, you know, where you're with a community group or a prayer pod or, or one of our prayer meetings, right? And so two, three hours uh, out of your week, um, we're together and we're sitting under God's word and we're being formed by God's word. That leaves a lot of hours. And most of us are being formed by all kinds of other sources, like all kinds of other things, whether it's coming over TV or the radio, um, over social media. And it's, it's just, it's kind of, it's common sense that if we're putting significantly more time and energy and desire and passion into, you know, for instance, arguing with people that are wrong on the internet, um, then we are into meditating on God's word that's going to have an impact. Uh, that is going to form us. Um, what Jesus is inviting us to here, when he talks about abiding in his word, being his disciples, he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think it's really important for us to realize that when Jesus talks about the truth, he's not just talking about a teaching. Um, he's not just talking about doctrines. Doctrines are important. Um, there are a lot of things that we need to know and we need to believe. But in a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, I am the truth and the way and the life. Abiding in his word, knowing him, Meditating on God's word day and night is meant to bring us into communion with him. It's meant to foster a relationship. 
I love the way Eugene Peterson uh, has paraphrased uh, the verses at the end of Matthew 11. So at the end of Matthew 11, uh, it's where Jesus says, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses. He says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. One of the reasons that we're reading the scriptures together, uh, that we're reading the Psalms together, um, is because we want to introduce more time into your lives and our lives, that we would do it together, um, where we're abiding in Jesus' word, where we're walking alongside of him, where we're watching the unforced rhythms of grace, the way he has lived. Um, we need these things to be formed uh, in us. It's really interesting how the reaction um, that Jesus' listeners have, um, as he understands it, is as violent um, as it is. Um, one of the things about being formed is that as much as um, learning to do something by second nature makes it more and more comfortable, it means that learning to do or trying to do anything else becomes more and more uncomfortable um, to the point where we'll reject it uh, quite vehemently. Um, he says, you're seeking to kill me because my words find no place in you. One of the most, one of the tragic things uh, that can happen um, when we are formed more by the world around us than by meditating on God's word um, is that it can destroy our witness. Um, it can cause us to present a picture of Jesus to the world uh, that's ugly, uh, that's, that's off-putting, that's violent. Um, there was an article uh, this past week, there was an interview with uh, an evangelical woman uh, who's also a climate scientist, and this was in the New York Times, and, and it was interesting to see, you know, the journalist for the Times try to figure out, like, how did those two things go together, evangelical and climate scientist? And, and the interview actually turned much more in the direction of her faith than her thoughts about the climate. Um, and one of the things that uh, that she said uh, towards the end of this was she talked about a time that she gave a talk uh, at a school and afterwards uh, a dean took her aside um, and the dean said, you know, I also used to be uh, a Christian, but I'm not anymore. And she asked him why. And here's what he said. He said, it wasn't because I doubted the existence of God. It's because I couldn't see any evidence of God working in people. I saw person after person who claimed that they took the Bible seriously 
and all I saw was the opposite of love. It got to the point where I couldn't see any evidence of God working in people. It's a tragic thing, uh, but it's more and more common um, that people are put off not so much by Jesus, um, but by the witness of those who claim to have believed in him, um, but who have been formed more by the world, such that their witness is, is destroyed. Now, I want to look really briefly um, at this analogy uh, that, that they introduce uh, and that Jesus works with um, of being slaves to sin. They ask him, what do you mean you will become free? Uh, we're offspring of Abra Abraham and have never been enslaved uh, to anyone. Um, here's the mistake that they're making. And I have a homework assignment for you if you want to read more about this. Uh, we don't have time to look at this now. Uh, read Romans 4, uh, verses 1 through 12, because uh, Paul goes over this. Uh, Romans 4, 1 through 12 talks about exactly this. Um, they are thinking that because they're the offspring of Abraham, because they have the law, that is going to keep them free. What Jesus is challenging them to see is that there's a whole other way of relating to the Father. Um, and in fact, that whole other way applied to Abraham also. This is what Paul talks about in Romans. Um, that even for, for Paul, excuse me, even for Abraham, he was set free first by his faith. That was counted to him as righteousness. And then uh, God gave him uh, the law. Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What Jesus is pointing out is that if you look at, um, if you were to look at a Roman household, you could have a son and you could have a slave. Um, and you got to remember that slavery in the Roman world was very different uh, from chattel slavery, um, as was practiced in this country. Uh, slaves could be uh, very distinguished, highly educated uh, people. A son and a slave at a certain age could look identical to each other and have all basically the same life, uh, same access, same privileges, same education, but only one really had a place. Uh, only one had an inheritance. Only one was going to remain uh, forever. Um, what it comes down to is how you relate to the Father. The people that Jesus is talking to are rooting their identity in the law that God has given to them, and in their capacity to keep uh, that law. The problem is that they're forgetting how they were set free in the first place. They're forgetting the story, uh, even the story of the law itself. Remember, 
When God gave the law to Moses, the first thing he said was, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, therefore, and then he gave the Ten Commandments, then he gave the law. They were set free first, and then the law was given as a gift. They've got it all backwards. Um, this is something that we can do, too. Um, if we believe that our freedom uh, is something that we earn, uh, if we believe that our freedom is something that we work for and that we only maintain uh, as long as we keep on God's good side, then that freedom can itself become a prison because we forget exactly how we were set free. You know, we sing that song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now found, was blind, but now I see. And if we don't have that memory of having been lost, uh, of having been blind, of having been saved, of having been set free when we couldn't set ourselves free, then our freedom itself uh, can become a prison. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The way that we remember the story, the way that we remember where our freedom really came from, it's really the same answer that we had last week. Remember what Jesus said? He said, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you'll know me. Then you'll know that I am. Uh, when you see this. Because when we look at this Son who sets us free so that we're free indeed, he doesn't just set us free by allowing us into the house, right? It's not like the son turns to the slave and says, I'd like you to be here too with me. This son actually gives us his place in the house and takes our place as the outcast. The way that he has set us free indeed is by this great exchange. Um, the reason that we gather every week is to remember that. Uh, that may be the most important thing when we talk about being formed by God's word. We're here to remind ourselves of that truth every week. Um, that we have been set free by a son who took our place so that we could have his. Um, that is what we remember every week when we come to this table. As we say to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we come to eat, let's pray together.